Amen. Jesus, there's no one like you. We love you. We ever adore you. What a song to sing as we contemplate the majesty of our Savior, as we contemplate his glory, and as we seek to savor him and to love him above all things. Thank you, Luke, and the rest of the music team for leading us in worship through song. What what a glorious time, praising the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. While you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Who in the Bible is somebody that you look up to? Your biblical hero, if you will. And you can't say Jesus because Jesus is the right answer. We should all look up to Jesus. It's good. You also can't say like Ahab and Jezebel. That's a problem. They are not people you should be looking up to. Some of you said uh, Daniel was such an encouraging time as we went through that book together and we saw his faith on display. Obviously, all of the people in the Bible need Jesus, their hero. The only hero in the Bible is Jesus. But I wonder who in the Bible, as you read through it, do you look at and you think, you know what, there is a faith that I want to permeate my life. David before Goliath. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not bowing down. There are so many different people in the Bible who place their faith in God, and you see the effects of that in supernatural, miraculous ways. One of those individuals that I love so dearly is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is one of my heroes of the faith in the scriptures. He's an incredible figure who, I was thinking as we sang that last song, he would love that song. There's no one like Jesus. Let me decrease and let him increase. That was his song while he was on the earth. I want to make much of Christ. I want him to be magnified in my life. And it's very interesting because in the Gospel of Mark, there are only two passages that are not explicitly about the activity of Jesus. The entire Gospel is about Jesus and explicitly about his actions or his teachings, except for two passages, two places. Number one, the very opening of Mark speaking of John the Baptist, and number two, the passage we are going to study this morning in Mark chapter 6 with the death of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the only person that can get Mark off track. As he's focusing on Jesus, he will give us two different narrative accounts of this individual. There are so many reasons why, but this morning the reason why is because Mark wants to show us through John's life and his death Number one, the harsh reality of what sin looks like, the essence of sin and the consequences of sin. And then number two, he wants us to see in vivid detail the cost of following Christ. So let's read these verses together. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, going all the way down to verse 30. And then we will ask God's blessing on our time this morning. King Herod heard of it. 
for his name to become well-known. And Jesus' name had become well-known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miracles are at work in him. But others were saying he's Elijah. Others were saying he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when John, when Herod heard of it, he kept on saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but could not do so because Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately, she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give to me at once on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and they took away his body and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. This is the word of God. Father, we come before you and we quiet our hearts at such a sober scene a graphic scene, a bloody scene. A scene that may be familiar to some of us as we have read this account before. And yet a scene that we would ask by your power and according to your grace that you would show us And enable us to read from this passage as if it were the first time we heard this account. That we would be unsettled, startled, shocked, saddened. That we would not remain unaffected as we read through this text. Father, I pray that you would enable us to see the perfect 
relevance of all of the Bible for every part of life today. As we stare at this text and we see the gravity that is here and the application and implication for us today as followers of you. We saw last Lord's Day that as you sent your disciples out on mission, they worked wonders. And this morning we see as you sent John on mission, it would cost him his head. So Father, I pray that you would give us a sobriety of spirit, of mind, and of heart that we would be here in this moment to hear from you, to receive your word, and to live according to it. Affect us, change us, transform us. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Last Lord's Day, we saw Jesus commission his disciples and send them out into a missionary journey, declaring the gospel in God's power, with God's authority, with accompanying signs to validate the message that God had given to his disciples and to demonstrate its power. And as the disciples were going around declaring the truth of the gospel, they were doing signs and wonders, and those signs and wonders were being reported back to Herod. Herod becomes aware of it in verse 14. But notice, he doesn't become aware of the disciples. The disciples are doing miracles by the power of Jesus, so it's Jesus who becomes well-known. Verse 14, his name had become well-known. Jesus' name had become well-known. But there's something here, and we, we briefly talked about this last Lord's Day. Mark is placing the story of John the Baptist inside of the account of Jesus sending out his 12 disciples on mission. So he, he sends them out, and then in verse 30, we have the bookend of him sending them out. And in the middle, we have this Markin sandwich again. We have the two pieces of bread with the sending out of the disciples and the return of the disciples. And then we have this account of John the Baptist. There is something about this story that is so important to understand in light of the missionary journey of the 12. They go together. And I believe the point of Mark doing that is to put their mission in its context. He is showing them and us, all of his readers, that they will be met with anger, with hostility, with opposition as they take the gospel to the world around them. There will be opposition to the message and being faithful to the Lord may even mean losing your life. So let's dive into this text and as I said at the beginning, we will see the harsh reality of what sin is and we will see the consequence and the cost of following Christ, faithfulness to Christ. We'll see both of those together as we stare at this text. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it. This is Herod Antipas, not Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who, at the beginning of Jesus' life, killed the babies when Jesus was born. This is his son, 
Herod Antipas. He's otherwise known as Herod the Tetrarch because when Herod the Great died, Herod the Great was kind of governor basically over Israel. You remember Rome owned Israel and Rome said to the people that they would capture, hey, we'll let you have your puppet politics, your puppet religion. We don't really care as long as you submit to us, don't fight against us. And as long as you pay taxes, you do whatever you want. So go ahead and have your Jewish people be king over you. We don't really care because we know we're king over you. Caesar's king over you. So Herod the Great was governor, king over Israel. When he died, he split the territory up into four different parts. That's why Herod Antipas is called the Tetrarch. Uh, Tetra is four. Arche is in Greek um, where we get the idea of ruler. So he's the ruler over a fourth. And he hears that Jesus is doing these signs and wonders. And people are saying to him, as they hear of Jesus doing all these miracles, they're saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. Now, look at how amazing the unbelief of the people is in context. They see the miracles. They see the signs and wonders. And they know that it's Jesus who's empowering these people to do it. And they don't say, we should submit to Jesus because we obviously know he is who he claims to be. No, they say that can't be true. Instead, we believe that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's how crazy their unbelief is. They would rather believe that John has been raised than that Jesus is who he claims to be. Stubbornness of heart. Verse 15, some are saying, well, maybe it's Elijah. Some are saying maybe he's a prophet, like the prophets of old. But when Herod hears of it, again, this is Herod Antipas, when he hears of it, he kept on saying, he kept on continually saying, he couldn't get this out of his mind. John, whom I beheaded, has risen It's emphatic. I, even I, was the one who beheaded him. I don't think that he's trying to be prideful saying, look at me, look at what I've done, I killed him. No, I think he is regretful. I think he's terrified. Like Lady Macbeth repeatedly washing her hands, crying for the bloody spot to leave. He's looking going, John the Baptist has come back from the dead to get revenge on me for what I've done. Now, The last that we have heard of John the Baptist, the last that we read of John was in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, where John was doing his ministry and then was arrested by Herod. So this is the very first time that we're reading that John is dead, which begs the question, how did he die and why did he die? And that's why Mark is going to give us a flashback in verses 17 through 29. He's going to take us back to tell us why John the Baptist died, how he died. Verse 17, this is the flashback. He's going back in time. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison. Josephus tells us, a Jewish historian of that day, tells us that John was imprisoned in Machaerus, which is on the southeast side of the Dead Sea in an area called Perea. You can visit its ruins to this day. You can go into the banquet hall where this would have taken place. You can go to the prisons beneath the banquet hall and you can see hooks that are on pillars and in the wall where more than likely John was bound to one of those hooks. It's still there today. And we're probably given this account by a woman named Joanna. Luke chapter 8 verse 3 tells us that she is the wife of Herod Antipas' steward, a manager of sorts over money and finances and things like that. A man by the name of Husa, 
Joanna is his wife, and so she is there. She's witnessing all these things, and so she probably related to the disciples, and Peter relays it to Mark. An eyewitness account. But verse 17, with Herod arresting John and putting him into prison, begs the question, why? Why is John being imprisoned? And the answer is given to us. On account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. So, why is John in prison? The answer is because he's preaching the truth of God's word regarding marriage and sexuality. Now, to understand this, you need to know Herod's family tree. And to understand that, I was talking to my wife about um, this family tree and this sermon this week. And I told her, let me see if I can just describe this to you in a way that makes sense. Because it's the most convoluted family tree in the world. And as I got about halfway through, she said, no, that doesn't make any sense. So what I I decided to do, uh, we don't do this here. I think this is maybe the second time I've ever done this in 10 years. I'm going to throw up a slide so that I can walk you through the family tree so that you can see it. If you're a visual learner, this is for you. You can see it. Because this is incredibly convoluted, but you need to know what's going on in order to understand why John is going to speak what he speaks against Herod. So here's the slide. I even have a little pointer here. So we got Herod the Great up here, right? He's the one who killed the babies when Jesus was born. He had 10 wives. So he had a bunch of sons. These are the 10 wives. Here are the sons. So for our purposes, we need to know Herod, Aristobulus, Antipas, and Philip. Herod Antipas is the guy that we're talking about. He's the one who's going to kill John the Baptist. His, uh, it would be half-brother here, Herod Aristobulus. He has a daughter named Herodias. And that daughter, so this is his uh, half-niece, she's going to marry Philip, her half-uncle, which already we're into disgusting territory. So they are married. Philip and and Herodias are married. And then Herod Antipas... He's going to marry, uh, he's forced to by Caesar. Caesar's going to tell him, you must marry the princess of Nabatea. There was a king named uh, Aretas IV. And so uh, Caesar says, you need to marry her. Political alliance, political marriage. So Philip is married to Herodias. Herod Antipas is married to the princess of Nabatea. Uh, Herod Antipas meets Herodias. They fall in love. They get divorced from their uh, specific respective husbands. So they're married, but they get divorced. And then he's married to the princess of Nabatea. They get divorced, and then they get married. One last thing you need to know is Herod Philip, after marrying Herodias, they have a daughter, and her name is Salome. So they have a daughter. She's going to show up. Salome is going to show up in this story, not by name. Josephus tells us who it is. Uh, But she's going to show up later. So that is... Herod Philip and Herodias' daughter, Salome. So Herod Antipas divorcing his wife, Herod Philip, or Herodias rather, divorcing her husband, and they're going to get married. And that's why John the Baptist says, that's wrong. You're not allowed to do that. It's wrong for a number of reasons. But here's the bottom line. Herod is going to, Herod Antipas is going to get divorced And marry his half-niece, who was also once his sister-in-law. And John's going to say, 
That's wrong on a whole number of levels, right? Like this is absolutely wrong. So hopefully that helps you a little bit with where we're at. Now back to the text. Verse 17, notice what Mark tells us John the Baptist said. I love this detail. Verse 17, had him bound in prison on account of Herodias, but who is Herodias? The wife of his brother Philip because he had married her. So John the Baptist says, I know that you have married her, but she is not your wife. He even includes here, she is your brother's wife. She's not yours. So John the Baptist is going to speak out against three specific sins that Herod Antipas has committed. Number one, an unbiblical divorce, an unlawful, unbiblical divorce. Number two, committing adultery. Because if you commit an unbiblical divorce and get married to somebody, that is committing adultery. And number three, an unbiblical incestuous relationship. So three areas of sin that John the Baptist is saying, you are in sin. Leviticus 18, 16, Leviticus 20, verse 21, probably verses that John the Baptist would have preached to Herod Antipas. It's staggering to me just to think of what John the Baptist is doing. Herod Antipas, at this point in time, is about 30 years into his 43-year reign. He's older. He has developed a government. He's developed authority and power. And people are looking up to him for that law and authority. And John the Baptist says, it doesn't matter who you are. You are never outside of the bounds of God's law. What happens? Verse 18, we get the detail. John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. In verse 19, Herodias has a grudge against him and wants to put him to death. This leads to just, I'm going to give you four observations about the essence of sin, the reality of sin, what sin is intrinsically at its deepest part. Number one, sin is hateful. Number one, sin is hateful. She has such a deep Hatred against John because John is calling her out on her sin. And she wants to kill him for it. Sin is hateful. It hates those who speak the truth. Sin despises people who call out their sin. Sin also has an element of fear. Verse 20. Herodias wants to kill him but can't because, verse 20, Herod was afraid of John. He's afraid. <laughs> I love the way J.C. Ryle says this. A friendless, solitary preacher with no other weapon than God's truth disturbs and terrifies the king. This is John the Baptist. You remember what he looked like. You remember probably how he smells. You remember this guy is crazy. And Herod's terrified of him. Why? Because he speaks the truth. Goodness, holiness, always terrifies evil. The truth will set you free, yes, but first the truth will make you miserable. And that's what we see here. And people who have that happen, people who hear the truth, the truth is preached, they're miserable because of it, and they say, I don't like that. They lash out and they hate the truth. Secondly, sin is hypocritical. Sin's not only hateful, it's hypocritical. 
Notice that Herod is totally fine sinning in certain areas, but not others. He will not let Herodias kill John. Why? Because he's a holy man. He's a righteous man, verse 20. So he keeps him safe. That would be wrong, Herod says. But divorcing my wife, getting married to my half-niece and former sister-in-law, that's fine. This is hypocritical. Sin always is. He's okay having an adulterous relationship, but he says murder is going too far. We won't do that one. Even once he's arrested, John keeps on preaching the truth, and Herod likes hearing it. I love this. Verse 20, when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. He enjoyed it. There was something in it that was getting to his conscience, that was getting to his heart. Herodias hated John, but Herod is saying, you know what, there's something here that I need to hear, I want to hear. This this is one of the reasons why I absolutely love and treasure the example of John the Baptist. There is no question that John is preaching the truth. That's going to get him killed. There's no question about that. But there's also no question that John is preaching the truth in love. He's preaching the truth in love. He's calling it like it is, but he's doing it with grace, with kindness, with compassion. I like to think of John with tears in his eyes saying, Herod, you know this is wrong. You know you're a Jewish man. You know that what you're doing is wrong. You know it in your heart. You know it in your conscience. Don't stiff arm the Lord. You know it's wrong. I think in our circles, we've talked about this before at church, but in our circles, I think we tend to think speaking the truth is loving. Therefore, it doesn't matter how I say it. As long as I say it, that's all that matters. Me telling you the truth is love. And so therefore, it doesn't really matter how I say it. I think the Bible would say that you're wrong if you believe that. 1 Corinthians 13 You could have the tongue of men and of angels, but if you have not love, it doesn't profit anything. If you speak the truth, but you don't do it in love, it doesn't profit anyone anything. That's why Paul gives the command, speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. You have to be careful. You have to be wise, discerning. You have to have discretion. You have to know when to speak, when not to speak. You have to be very vigilant in the way that you go about speaking the truth. And John does it so perfectly. Because even though he's called out the sin of Herodias and Herod, Herod still says, I want to hear you. Can I just ask you, do you have people in your life where you disagree with the way that they're living their life and you've told them that and they're still your friend? Do you have that? Because I think, again, in our circles, we wear it like a badge of honor that I told this person the truth and we're no longer friends. That's not right. If you push them away because of your truth and you don't bring them in, if they want to walk away, that's on them to do so. But they better not be walking away because you're being a jerk. John the Baptist, what a great example. Sin is hateful, it's hypocritical. Herod is a compromiser who lacks integrity. The only real decision that he ever made was to divorce his wife and get remarried. And it is impossible to live life like this. At some point, you are going to either side with righteousness, repent, turn to Christ, or you're going to side with sin, selfishness, rebellion, and your own desires. You cannot serve two masters. So 
He likes hearing, but he's not repenting. His second wife is not really like him at all. Verse 21, she wants him dead and she is not going to compromise. She's going to hold a grudge and she doesn't care what happens. She wants to kill John the Baptist. So she's planning a strategic day. Verse 21, we read about it. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet. I just, who throws a birthday party for themselves? This guy is very prideful. Gives a banquet for his lords. That would be high-ranking government officials, commanders, military commanders. That's high-ranking military leaders. And then this all-encompassing leading men of Galilee, which would be high-ranking social leaders. So all of the elite, the best of the best, the highest that are in power and authority. We aren't sure about this. But it might be that Jairus is at this event. Remember Jairus? We saw him in Mark chapter 5. Remember this account is a flashback. This happened before the account of Mark chapter 5 with Jairus. So it's possible Jairus as a leading man in Galilee. Remember he's the, uh, the officer, the official in the synagogue. It's possible he was there. It's also very possible that Pilate was there. It's a strategic day. They're having a party. They're having a banquet. The wine is flowing. Verse 22, when the daughter of Herodias. So that's that daughter uh, of Herod, Philip, and Herodias. They have a daughter, Salome. Again, her name's not here in this text, but we know her name from Josephus and from history. Uh, That's Salome. And so when Herodias divorces Philip and then marries Herod Antipas, Salome comes with her. So Salome is now Herod Antipas' stepdaughter. She comes in and she dances. She's a teenager because it says the king said to the girl... That word for girl is the same word that's used about Jairus' daughter. And she was 12 years old. So she's probably somewhere around teenage years. And she dances. And she pleased Herod and the dinner guests. Now, it's left to the imagination as to what this dance was. But I can assure you that it wasn't a square dance or a waltz. There's something devious to what's happening here. And Herod... Loves it. All the dinner guests love her dancing. And he says, ask me for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. End of verse 22. He swears to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. That's a phrase that the king and Esther used about Esther. Esther chapter 5 verse 3. Up to half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. Whatever you want. And she, verse 25, verse 24, goes and asks her mom, Herodias. So her mom's the one that's behind all this. This is the strategic day. I'm going to send my daughter to dance in front of all of these men. That leads to a third point. Sin is heinous. Sin is heinous. It's reprehensible. It's disgusting. It's evil. Look at how low Herodias stoops. She cares more about killing John the Baptist than her own daughter's dignity. She uses her daughter. So she goes, she asks her mom, what shall I ask for? And her mom says, the head of John the Baptist. This is it. She she won. She knew that this is the trap. It was set. It was baited perfectly. And she's going to get what she wanted. 
verse 25, so immediately. Can't lose the moment here. They're drunk. They're happy. We've got to go back in and ask right away. Immediately, verse 25, she came in a hurry to the king and asked. And I love this. I tried to read this the way that this is in the Greek. In my translation, uh, New American Standard, it's almost identical to the Greek. Um, the, the way that she says this strings Herod along. She doesn't say, I want the head of John the Baptist, like her mom said. And you can just, you can picture this. You can picture her walking back into the room. You can picture her sitting next to Herod and whispering to him. And she says, I want you to give to me. And he says, whatever you want, anything. I want you to give this to me right now. She says, he, he says, yes, of course, I'll give it to you, whatever you want. At this very moment on a platter. So now he's thinking food, some beautiful banquet, some spread that's going to be amazing. And her last words are the head of John the Baptist. I wonder at what moment Herod realized that he was being played. He probably had the biggest smile when she came back in. Probably all the men that were surrounding her in this banquet hall. He is so proud to say, I put such a perfect show on display. And he's smiling, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And then she says, I want John dead. And I have to imagine at that moment, everything just came just in a, in a flash in Herod's mind. I have been played. And his smile turns to a frown as he realizes, I didn't want to do that. I don't want to kill him. And he doesn't have to. He could have stepped in right away and said, you know what? My bad. Anything but that. So why doesn't he? Verse 26, he's sad. He's very sorry. But because of his oaths, because of the dinner guests around him, he is unwilling to refuse her. Herod didn't want to murder John, but even more than that, he doesn't want to go against his word in front of his dinner guests. He doesn't want to look bad. He doesn't want to look like he's not keeping his word which is incredibly ironic and pathetic because he didn't keep his word when he said he was going to marry this other woman until death do us part and then just snaps that relationship off and marries Herodias. Everybody would have known you are not a man of your word. Look at how twisted this is. Look at how hypocritical. This goes back to our second point. Sin is hypocritical. His conscience had been awakened by John but then just snuffed out by his own Pride and self-preservation. Now it leads to the final point, number four. Sin is harmful. It's harmful. It's deadly. It's destructive. It always does damage. Always. Sin always harms you and the people around you. Even if it's private sin, there is a harm that will still come to those around you because sin has a splash zone. Verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and he had him beheaded in the prison and he brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. Jerome tells us about this incident. He writes that 
Herodias when she was given this platter with blood just dripping off of it onto her hands and onto her arms. She spat on John the Baptist's face. She pulled out his tongue and stabbed it with a fork and said, that's what you get for speaking against the king. Sin is harmful. It kills those around you. It wounds those around you. It harms those around you. But it harms you as well. The story doesn't end well for Herod and Herodias. It's not recorded for us in scripture what happened, but it's recorded in history. First, Herodias pressured Antipas into begging the emperor, Caligula, uh, to give him the title of king and ultimately to let him be king over all of Israel, not a fourth of Israel. And so he kept asking. Caligula was annoyed by Herod Antipas, just said, stop talking. I'm not giving you that title. Interestingly enough, maybe that's why Mark calls him King Herod in verse 14, because everybody knew he wanted to be called king, but the emperor said no. Alongside this, the, the king, that the, the father of the princess of Nabatea, was incredibly enraged when Antipas divorced her, and so he started a war with Antipas and with Israel. There was a big war with the Nabataeans and it made Caligula, all these things combined, made Caligula so angry that he banished Antipas into exile from Israel and Rome into Gaul in AD 39. Herodias went with him and that ended the war with the Nabataeans and Herod and Herodias died in exile. Herod's wife had played him to get what she had wanted for a year, over a year actually. And this shouldn't have been a shock to Herod. It's not a shock to us reading it because if somebody's willing to break their commitment in marriage, their covenant for a lifetime, then what else are they unafraid to do? Herodias had no problem getting divorced, no problem getting remarried, no problem sexually exploiting her daughter to use her to get to the king to kill John. And it doesn't end well. The story ends badly for them, even from a secular perspective. Why? Because sin is harmful. It always leads to destruction. So that's the sin side. I told you we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at sin and the essence of sin, the reality of sin. But I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's the main point of this passage. If I were to stop there, I think Mark would say, that's good, but that's not why I put that account where I put it. Because remember, the account continues, verse 29, the disciples hear about this. They came, they took away his body, they laid it in a tomb, and the apostles gathered together with Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So remember, it's the bookends. Jesus sends out the disciples, then the story of John the Baptist, and then the return of the disciples. So there's something about this story that is meant to be understood by Mark's readers in light of the context of being sent out on mission. Verse 30 brings the conclusion of the missionary journeys, reminding us that Mark is including the account of John the Baptist for a very specific reason. And this whole text of John the Baptist is so interesting because Mark, who is normally so economical with his words, spends so much time on this account, so much ink is spilled, more so than the other Gospels. And it's not even about Jesus. So why is Mark doing this? 
Here's the reason why. Because Mark's readers are living under the reign of Nero. And Nero's modes of execution are far more brutal and grotesque than beheading. And so it's worth Mark's time and attention to tell his readers of the story of someone who sacrificed his life because of his faithfulness to Jesus and his uncompromising adherence to the truth. Because Mark knew that many of his readers would be called to do the same, losing their life in faithful service to the Lord. And brothers and sisters, so might we. That's why Mark includes this. Yes, there is such truth about the essence of sin. We've seen four points about it. But really, the whole point of this narrative is to show us the cost of following Jesus. The cost of faithfully following Jesus. Look at what got John killed. Look at this. Of all the things, it was his stance on marriage. You know, I get people tell me a lot, "Ah, I think the Bible's kind of boring and it's not relevant for us today. Is there anything more relevant right now in our context and culture than to know what the Bible clearly teaches about what marriage is and what marriage isn't? And that's what got John killed. That he said, this is God's design. One man, one woman, one lifetime, that's it. This is amazing. Look at the culture around us. We're living in Romans 1. We're living in a time and a context and a culture where people are calling Good, evil, and evil, good. And saying, if you don't join with us in calling evil good, you're evil. And like John, we need to stand with clarity and compassion for the truth. Mark is telling his readers, including you and me today, that we will be met with opposition. Just think about our culture. Think about how our culture understands this idea of sexual identity That's a term. Sexual identity is a term coined by our culture to define oneself based on their attractions. As they would see it, attractions are your desires. We would know that desires become lusts. Lusts become actions. Actions become your identity. And for them, your identity is your identity. And it's legitimate no matter what the object of your affections would be. This is who you are. The world looks at Christians who declare what the Bible says and has clearly spoken and drawn lines around marriage and sexuality and they would say we're wrong, we're bigots, we're malicious, we're evil. And Mark says, you might be hated for that. Now again, please don't be hated because you're a jerk in the way that you share the truth. But if somebody is offended because you're saying this is what the Bible says, it's spoken clearly, it is not confusing, it's one man, one woman, one lifetime, that's it. Anything outside of that is immoral, it's wrong, and it's sin. People will not like you for that. Just think about John the Baptist. He's one of the most notable people in the entire world at that time next to the emperor. Everyone's flocking to him. 
They want to hear him. They want to see him. They want to understand what's going on. Thousands of people are flooding. Hundreds of thousands of people are listening to him. And think about what he said. We know from scripture that John the Baptist preached against the Pharisees, condemning them for leading people to hell. He said, you are going to hell and the people that you're preaching to are going to hell if they follow what you're saying. He preached against people who trusted in religious leaders for salvation, in their works, in their goodness for salvation. He preached against soldiers who exploited their command and accepted bribes. He preached against self-righteous Jews who would not repent of their sin. And yet all of those people groups did nothing about John. The Pharisees didn't murder him. The soldiers didn't kill him. The masses didn't kill him. John was murdered by a couple who had illegitimate divorces, had an illegitimate marriage, who hated the fact that John preached against their immorality. They felt so strongly that they needed to be vindicated in their choice to be married to each other that they murdered him. They murdered the person who condemned them. And so Mark is writing to tell us, as you follow Jesus, you will be met with opposition. Just like Jesus said, they hated the master, they're going to hate those who follow him. So don't be surprised. I think that's what Mark would say. Don't be surprised if you're met with opposition, if you're met with persecution, if you're met even with physical harm. Why? Because sin hates the truth. It's hypocritical, it's heinous, it's harmful. So we need to preach the truth. We need to speak the truth to the people in our lives. We need to be in relationships with people who need to hear the truth. That's why we need to be like John, where Herod loves to listen to John talking. We need to be clear about what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality. We need to do so with tears in our eyes with the friends that we have who would reject Christ. But we don't look at the world around us and be, we're not surprised when we're met with opposition and hostility. We also don't view those people that we're communicating with who are living in sexual immorality, we do not view them as the enemies. Please hear me clearly. They are not the enemy. They're not the enemy. And they're exactly who we used to be. They're exactly who we used to be. Apart from the gospel and the grace of our Savior, they are who we once were. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 through 22. We were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. And yet, God reconciled us. This is who we are. So go in humility. Go knowing that they don't even have a capacity to understand the glory of Jesus. Show them the scriptures. Show them the beauty of Christ. Show them why the gospel is on display in marriage. Live out your marriages to put Christ on display. I think one of the takeaways from this text is that we should be very thankful that we have a moment like this in our lives where there is some semblance of peace and we can share the gospel and we can share the truths of God's word. But we shouldn't lose sight of what serious persecution looks like and what it may come to. For us. But if and when it does come, if and when persecution comes like this, if we were to actually lose our heads for Christ, we're just following in the footsteps of our Savior. Look at verse 29. 
If you read verse 29 in isolation, you wouldn't even know. Is this about Jesus or is this about John? When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. It sounds exactly like what the disciples do with Jesus when he dies. Why? Because John is just following in the footsteps of Jesus. He is the example. So Mark is writing, yes, to show us the essence of sin. But more than that, he's writing to show us that the call to discipleship may very well involve a platter and a martyr's head. But death can never silence a life of faith. Death can never silence a legacy of faithfulness. Just think about this. No one names their son Herod. And how many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Johns are there in the world? Oh, John lost his head, yes, but Herod and Herodias lost their soul. In the end, there is zero question in this text. Who's the winner and who's the loser? So can I plead with you, follow Jesus, no matter what it costs. Follow him because he first loved you and gave himself for you, opening up our blind eyes. We were blinded by our sin. We had no ears to hear his voice, and yet his spirit gave us life through the preaching of his word. So we should go out and preach the word of God. We should plead with those around us, those in our families, those who are our friends, those who are our coworkers. Live life with them, love them, and point them to Christ and show them what sin is and show them that Jesus is better than anything sin has to offer. We can leave a legacy of faithfulness and never be afraid of our death because we know the one who rose from the dead never to die again. Let's follow him. And let him do what would glorify him in our lives. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing man, John the Baptist. We thank you that he is such uh, an example to us. And this passage is so relevant to us today. All of the Bible is. But how explicit and specific in our day and age. God, may we never go into the world and purposefully be offensive or purposefully speak the truth without love. No, God, make us like John, where people in our lives who would completely disagree with us, they would say, but I want to hear you. I want to hear what you have to say because I know you love me. I know you love me. I know you're not here just to win an argument or an intellectual war. No, I know you love me. I know you care about me. God, make us men and women who would live life with others that we may completely disagree with what they're doing. And we would never approve of the things that they do, but we would always accept them. We would always love them. We would always welcome them. We would always point them to Christ. And that we would speak the truth in love. And yes, that might meet that might be met with hostility, opposition, that might be met even with persecution and our own death. But we're not going anywhere that Jesus has not pioneered. And Father, to be with you one day and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. If we're pleasing to you, it doesn't matter who in this life is displeased by what we do or say. 
Father, if we are not pleasing to you, it doesn't matter who is pleased in this life by what we do or say. May we live for an audience of one because of your amazing grace, your kindness, and your love for us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.